Welcome to the Business Disrupted Podcast, brought to you by Samsung. I'm your host, Eric Qualman. And today we're going to talk about developing the killer app for your business. The right app in the hands of employees can transform business models, improve productivity, and even improve training and retention. But what goes into developing a successful application with a truly innovative user interface? We'll dive into these questions, plus how immersive tech from AR to AI is changing the app landscape overall. Let's introduce our guests. Joining us today is Jared Ficklin, partner and chief creative technologist at Argo Design. Jared has over two decades of experience creating products and visions for major companies, including HP, Microsoft, AT&T, SanDisk, and many more. His philosophy is think by making, deliver by demo. And he's a master at applying innovative technologies in the creation of new interactive experiences. We're also joined by Chris White, the founder and CEO of the Sneakers Agency, a New York-based agency that helps enterprise companies develop mobile apps. Chris is a passionate mentor and entrepreneur. He brings over 15 years of mobile software engineering experience to digital product strategy and development for established brands, startups, and agencies. Welcome to the show, Jared and Chris. What I want to start off with is, what does the mobile economy mean for, for your business, and what do you feel like it means for IT leaders as a whole? Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, my company, Sneakers, we're a uh, digital agency, so we're a services company. We have deep roots in mobile. I was a mobile engineer for many years, and, and that's why I started the company. We pretty much rely heavily on the whole mobile ecosystem. Our clients uh, range from mobile startups to enterprises doing mobile, so most of our business model relies on mobile, I would say. In terms of IT leaders, I think that uh, it's a formidable challenge for IT leaders at this point. And I make a clear distinction between people who just sort of come from IT and information technology and networking and those types of things versus people who are building products and know how to build products. In working with um, especially enterprises, a lot of times their IT teams are given these initiatives or projects to start building these mobile tools and, and things like that for the enterprise. And they don't really know how to do it because they're not uh, product people. They're not software people. And so it's a pretty formidable challenge for them. And, you know, that's sort of where the key role of sort of an agency comes into play or obviously hiring your own internal people. But I usually try to draw a clear distinction between, you know, folks who come from more of like an IT world versus, you know, the pure software design and, and development world, if that makes sense. In the area of product design, and Argo is a product design firm at heart, and we kind of build the things you hold in your hands and use in your home and the software that helps your business, and we want it to be meaningful and all that. There's been this great transition over the last 20 years from computing to mobile computing. And what it's enabled is people to live this digital lifestyle where they want ubiquity in computing. They want access to socialization, entertainment, and productivity in a handheld form all the time. And that has really changed the definition of what a product is, how much information backs it, like Bruce Sterling's concept of spine. It's no longer just an object. It's object plus all the metadata that follows it and the mobile being the access point to that. And it's even changed behavior. And that's, I think, where the IT leaders are seeing a big struggle from our side. They've been asked to set up all the data in the back end to support the computerization largely based on productivity. And now 
that transitions to changes in behavior because the mobile way of doing it is different from the way it was uh, 10 years ago. And it's predicated more on context and behavior. And now they're looking at their systems and they're saying, how do I add these layers to my system that can not just tap into the data and return a result, but acknowledge the context and the behavior of the user so that the mobile experience works effectively. It's a big challenge. And so they're having to think about experience and not just plumbing. And there are many different definitions of mobile innovation, but when you hear the term mobile innovation, what does that mean to you? Really, to me, I think it's um, enabling a company to deliver on its core purpose. I think any company out there that's doing mobile innovation really first has to understand what it's really trying to deliver to the marketplace. I think that you know, mobile in and of itself is is an access point, uh, is a medium. You know, you do have obviously companies who are very mobile first, where the main point of user interaction is a mobile app. But I think underlying all of those sort of great mobile products and companies is still really that core underlying purpose of wanting to make something better for people out in the world. And so mobile innovation on top of that core purpose is really to me developing and designing a seamless intuitive user experience where someone really gets direct access to really helpful functionality immediately right on their phone wherever they are. Mobile innovation is getting increasingly rare. This has become the dominant and established pattern for practicing our digital lifestyles. And so it's really gotten quite specific. And really, mobile in a lot of ways is getting influenced more heavily by other innovations. You can still innovate on the device. There's a lot of refinement that can be done. There's a lot of gaps and cracks to be filled. Great value comes from closing small gaps. But the innovation is is getting narrow, and it's beginning to be influenced a lot more by outside things, I think. I mean, that's a great point. As you look at it, most consumers think of an app is on their phone or tablet. Is there any exciting app out there that's beyond those boundaries that the audience should know about? There's a whole bunch of great little voice apps. One that's really kind of controversial is you can put one in that basically turns it into a uh, intercom system. So you can activate it remotely and just listen to everything that's going on the room around it. There's no better controversial piece. Now, we've evolved from push button to touchscreen to voice activation. What are some of the latest immersive technologies changing the game for application developers and how are they being used? I think facial recognition is sort of top of mind on my end. I think what makes that interesting is, you know, you can get into sort of new types of situations uh, and user experiences um, within retail. Uh, Obviously, security-related stuff is pretty uh, common. But you can also do interesting things in the healthcare space with uh, healing and pain management. Um, And so I think the industry as a whole will probably just continue to build off of image recognition, but also facial recognition technology to build like sort of really innovative uh, user experiences. I would second what Chris said there. There is this exciting notion that the camera paired with machine learning builds an environment of objects, which doesn't seem immersive at first, but it does start getting really immersive in very interesting new ways to know what is in your environment and how it can participate with a digital system. And it's a real keystone to like getting to augmented reality 
or past augmented reality into like a mixed reality or an integrated reality. So the opposite form of immersion from virtual reality, which is one where, you know, Unity, Unreal, you know, these these 3D engines that used to be just ways to make Flash games or, or web games have become these very powerful and they're the next technologies where a lot of user interface is going to be created for immersive experiences, but also we're seeing increasingly for integrated reality experiences. And then there's a third one that I think that's waiting in the wings that's going to appear any day. And I think that is uh, 3D audio or spatial audio. The idea that audio could be placed in a room in a specific place by an array of speakers, or the idea that rather than have earbuds in, earbuds beside, so that you could have mixed audio from the outside with audio that is put in. You'll notice, I think what both of us did there is the new immersive is not immersive. It's your digital lifestyle mixing with your real lifestyle so that you can be heads up present in your environment, but still have the vestiges of your digital lifestyle there. That is the new immersive, and that's the exciting ways that things are trending. When we talk about AR and IA enhancing the user experience, how is it doing it today from a user interface perspective? And then what does that mean 10 years from now as well? Currently, I, I think it hasn't really changed too much in terms of mobile app user interfaces. I mean, you see some things like chatbots, uh, you know, there's certain applications uh, like sort of the Quartz News app comes to mind where, you know, it's a completely like chat driven sort of AI type of news interface, uh, which is really, really different, really cool, as opposed to just sort of reading through, you know, a, a normal stream of news. AR, I, I still am sort of on the fence uh, with AR. I actually think probably the better implementations of AR to date are more maybe at an enterprise uh, level. Things like, um, you know, being able to visualize what things will look like in a room, you know, I think has become more useful to people than, you know, sort of flash in the pan stuff like Pokemon Go and, and stuff like that. Um, but I think 10 years from now, I still think that um, the current types of interfaces that people use will still be pretty common. Um, I've used different types of chat type interfaces and things like that. And it's, it's sort of actually a lot of work to, to type back to something all the time. So unless we like all get used to, I think, speaking to things more, we might not see too much of a real change in terms of the way like visual interfaces look to users. But going back to sort of earlier points where technology just becomes more ubiquitous and around us, especially in our homes, um, you know, I think we could eventually see interesting applications within homes for AR and probably for AI to maybe help predict more about your day and, and what you're going to be doing and things like that. Intelligence and context, for sure. I'd see that too. You couldn't have asked about two completely different and put them in one question, right? AR and AI is just going to create really long answers because they are very different influencers on on the user interface, right? And augmented reality is creating these new opportunities for interfaces that place out into the environment. When you're looking them through mobile handhelds, sometimes they seem useful, like the box example we gave earlier, and sometimes they... Um, seem just like fun games. Um, when you start blending them with your environment and you start getting augmented reality porta potties, for instance, um, they take on a new level of usefulness uh, in terms of the ability to mark up digitally our environment. Projection and interactive projection that have really uh, made inroads into this area and have devices on the market today that can, through computer vision, put interfaces on any surface and allow you to interact with them. And at this point, you're really non-invasive. So AR is creating opportunities for 
the UI to come out into our environment. Now, AI on the other side is establishing context. And I think what Chris said is exactly right. It's a much quieter influence on UI. And what it's doing is it's allowing us to have a lot less UI because so much of what we do in user interface is actually there to establish context. We use a lot of designer terms like progressive disclosure. We have a lot of structures that are listing and tabbing structures. And we've refined these very well. But all of those choices and screens and tapping and even a lot of the chatbot interfaces themselves are to establish your context to tell us what information it is that you need back and what environment you're in, even the app itself. I launched Trulia because I was looking for a home, right? AI, however, can establish this context just by watching your behavior and mining your data, which means that you can remove a lot of that UI. So we can look forward to much cleaner experiences with fewer clicks and fewer taps on them because of that influence. And I think that's probably one of the greatest influences AI is having on user interface. The other one is it's just creating new interfaces. You would not really have voice interfaces today without natural language, which is one of the early forms of artificial intelligence. What does it look like 10, 20 years from now? How do we interact with our devices, if they're devices at all? I want to say that I think people will just be sort of maybe talking like maybe to their phones or maybe maybe we won't have phones. Maybe it's just something behind our ear. I, I don't know. I, I used to joke about Google Brain uh, being this chip that goes behind your ear that just indexes your thoughts and things like that. But, you know, I think definitely people will still have mobile phones uh, 10 years from now. Maybe they'll be talking to them more. Maybe aspects of facial recognition and visual recognition will enhance that experience a bit. But I don't know. I, I don't see anything yet that would probably just like replace the need for, you know, having your phone with you and a screen and, you know, obviously being able to still do basic stuff like calling people. Yeah. It's the go back to 1867 and, you know, what, how will you be hauling the hay 20 years from now? It's still done with four wheels and horsepower, a lot more horsepower. But um, we may see something different here. What that question in 1867 never turned up is that the horses were just going to become a hobby or a very particular pattern for uh, hauling hay. And mobile handheld smartphones may also become a very, 20 years from now, be regarded as a very particular pattern of personal and multifunction computing. Because there's going to be this rise. We're already seeing a rise of multifunction computers spreading throughout the home. We're also going to see a proliferation of single-function computers, which is just starting now. The vent hood over your stove may become a single-function computer so that it can help you control your stove. The microwave may do this. The dishwasher may do this. And someone's going to invent a little chip that throws off five volts when you make eye contact with it so that you can begin talking to all these single-function computers. And you can look at the vent hood and say, turn on, and the sink doesn't also turn on, and the dishwasher doesn't turn on because it knows you were looking at it. And this is going to create the kind of technological superpowers that we used to on the physical side, which is the ability to reach farther or leverage our extrasensory perception. On the other side, I think we're going to see a whole proliferation of projection, which is going to create interfaces anywhere, which is going to create a cooperative and shared computing model where you and I could be working in the same environment, meaning we won't go to our mobile handheld when we are searching for a place to have takeout. We'll just ask the kitchen table and you and I will both see the query together and I'll be like, you know, I want sushi and you'll be like, no, let's get Indian food and we'll merge this list and make a decision together in a shared computing environment. And so 20 years from now, I think we're going to start seeing the first true usable forms of both of those models and where it really begins to emerge in this kind of ubiquitous computing scenario. If mobile was the innovation piece, what's kind of surpassing it? 
we're using mobile here and it was like, do we mean handheld computing or do we mean computing out in the environment, right? And one of the two things is going to happen here, like the term is going to subsume computing out in the environment, but we've been using other terms for that, you know, from IoT to augmented reality. But what is happening is increasingly we're seeing the computing experience spread from a immersive personal experience that mobile handheld gives people into a more ubiquitous computing environment. It's spreading out into the room. First, it's spreading into our bodies through wearables. Secondly, it's beginning to spread into the room through devices, not all of them with traditional UIs. Some of them have voice UIs. And uh, I think there's a coming wave of interactive projection creating um, augmented reality environments. Uh, and then it's going inward into virtual environments which is really just a very immersive personal computing experience. But um, these are big influencers. Then on the coming from sideways, this big gale force win is uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and how it's really changing what it means to have computing and mobile. You're Identity and personality used to be tied to a device, meaning you had to go to it for your computing. And in an increasing scale, you can get to any computing device. It knows you're there and able to give you your experience. So let's say those three, AI, augmented reality, and non-UI interfaces. So from voice to Internet of Things. All right. Now, this is a difficult question because it's quite broad. But if I'm going to sit down and design a killer app What are some of the main things that need to go through my mind as I sit down there for that design? Yeah, wow, that is, my clients ask me that question (laughs) all the time, and it's hard to come up with a clear answer for that. I I always sort of go back to, you know, really understanding the core problem first, you know, what is really your goal with what you're trying to do? I think that um, you look back at things like Instagram, why was Instagram like the best photo sharing app? There were so many photo sharing apps when Instagram came out. And uh, they were, they just did some innovative things. They made their photos small and standardized. They started uploading photos ahead of time before you were even finished, like editing it, you know. So I think killer apps do those little bit of extra things at the engineering level and the design level that delight users. And, you know, they're doing things that a user doesn't even realize, but it just sort of feels fast and fluent, you know, at the user experience level. I think that those are those killer apps and you know, that could be in the IoT space, in a regular mobile app, you know, voice activated, but it's those subtle sort of little tricks and engineering enhancements and design enhancements that I think resonate with people. Yeah, the term killer app is pretty funny in itself. <laughs> Maybe it should be like the, the most delightful app or used app or a, the most meaningful app. And I think that's where you start. It has to make a meaningful difference to someone's life. And it needs to reduce friction. And when those two things get together, you have the delightful experience to judge on, to pick between the three or four that really do this. But that, to me, is like the start of the formula. It's going to be really meaningful. It's going to remove friction because then it just threads right into your life. And it could thread in there delightfully or it could thread in there like as a calm interface or even a noisy one. You're going to gravitate to it. I don't think of Uber as terribly delightful, but it's really meaningful and it removes a lot of friction. Same with a lot of the other ride sharing apps. And that's really great. (laughs) Now, how can our listeners decide whether they're going to custom build an app or whether they should buy something off the shelf? They should always custom build and they should hire us to do it. It costs a lot of money and therefore it really keeps my designers employed. Even though you would have a similar answer, Chris, why don't you take the counter argument to that? 
I don't mind that position, actually, because part of what we do is uh, we look heavily at that sort of buy versus build equation. And I say that because um, we've done a good amount of what I call rescue projects of people bringing us these overcomplicated systems uh, that somebody built for them with way too many features too soon. That's not even really delivering yet on like the real core promise of the platform. And they're frustrated and, you know, they sort of had an experience where somebody, I think, was serving their ego more than like sort of doing right by them and building something simple that that works first. Uh, you know, so we really look hard and really challenge, uh, you know, folks who come to us to say, you know, do you really want to invest in doing this? You know, because when you actually launch your application, whether it's for internal like enterprise use or out into the world, one of my go-to phrases is that's when the real work begins. You know, you're going to be getting user feedback. You're going to have to support this thing. You know, so we look pretty hard at the long-term cost of ownership, like what we would be looking to build for somebody and really try to ascertain whether or not that's something they, they would want to commit to. And if not, you know, then, you know, we usually try to help them see if there's something more off the shelf that, you know, might get them 70 to 80% of the way there or something like that. But investing in your own bespoke application, it, it's a serious investment. Yeah, we both were joking there, but um, a lot gets built on the back of conventions. And if the user stories that you've put together and you've been able to successfully put them together match existing conventions, you can buy and you will benefit from that. But sometimes that is the case. Uh, but these days, that tends to go to more of a service model than uh, an actual buy an app. And so that leaves a lot of the new application work you know, solely in that area of where you need to put the, the work in to build the experience that people were looking for. And when you really target your customers and you've been successful in your marketplace, that usually means there's a pretty unique story behind your customer coming to you. And so we know when to employ a convention, and that doesn't cost that much money, then you layer on top of it what really meets the needs of the customer. And then when we're looking at developing items and applications for enterprises versus the customer, is there any distinction between those two or is it the same process? Uh, we generally look at it as uh, the same process. I think you run into certain things in the enterprise space that you don't typically have to deal with in the consumer space single sign-on types of situations and getting access to some legacy systems, different types of integrations and things like that. But overall, you know, you're, you're still really trying to make sure that you've nailed down a clear like sort of value proposition with what you're doing, a good feature set. And then, you know, from there do the design and build. So, you know, at, at the implementation level, it's not not really that different. Yeah, consumer level simplicity for enterprise level engineering and robustness is always a great goal to have. Well, I'm looking forward to that because my sprinklers were running today when it was raining. So I'm looking forward to some smarter intelligence in my house. I know that for sure. And for developing applications, what's the number one mistake that you see people make? I would say, and, and I had a handful of these, um, but picking one, I would say not planning up front for the long-term cost of ownership uh, and, and really discounting what it's going to take to not only get this thing built and get it out into the wild, but sustain it and, and watch it grow. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to build this thing and then my work's done, you know, especially for folks who've never built a mobile application or, you know, any sort of type of uh, digital product before. So I see a lot of people make that that big mistake, you know, they just look at it as an initial outlay to pay somebody to build this thing, but they really don't have an appreciation for everything that's going to go into making it better, optimizing it, dealing with user issues, all that, you know, sort of boring nuts and bolts stuff that really goes back to like running a business, you know, because you are like sort of with 
ultimately whatever you're making, hopefully, you know, trying to run a successful business. So that's probably what I see happen the most with people. Yeah, I think uh, people underestimate the cost of simplicity and the expectation of users when they get into a, a mobile handheld scenario of how simple they want that to be. And uh, that can be expensive. And then once you develop something and launch it, how do you know it's successful? I think you know it's successful when you don't feel like you're pushing people to use it. Um, you know, you definitely have, you know, a good amount of word of mouth spreading about what you're doing. Obviously, you're going to be doing some of your own marketing and things like that. But, you know, I think it's just sort of this gut visceral feeling that people get with certain types of technology where they really like it and they want to tell their friends about it because they think it's it's just really cool. And so I think if you sort of see that you're getting that word of mouth out there naturally, I think you know that you're on to something. It can be hard to get that initially, and, and maybe that's where some advertising and things come into play. But I know for anything I've ever sort of typically used and really liked, I usually love telling people about it and saying, oh, you should you know, go try and use this app because I, I think you could get a lot of benefit from it. So I think that's usually when people know. I, I think the same at the enterprise level, too. If you're building enterprise tools or B2B tools, if... If you don't feel like you're forcing your employees to use these tools, then I think you've probably sort of hit the right spot. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a presumptive uh, success. I think if you've done your work ahead of time, then you've set up the criteria that you're going to see get checked off, and then you know it's successful. Um, if you're still wondering a few weeks after launch what would make this successful, there may have been a few steps missed before then. Very well said. I think a lot of people do miss that step. Sometimes just asking what does success look like across all departments and then they get at the end and someone thinks it's successful, another person doesn't because they didn't really define it ahead of time. So you're so spot on there, Jared. Now, as we look at it, when you're out at a barbecue, you're at a, a dinner party, cocktail reception, what's out there that most people don't know about that you're excited to tell them about? I definitely like talking to people about blockchain and Bitcoin, helping them to understand it more. I think that there's a lot of misconceptions out there around what these technologies are, but also a lot of people who aren't from the computing world. They don't, I think, appreciate how revolutionary these technologies are. Uh, they're definitely like getting a lot of hype and, and probably getting a bit too overhyped at this point. Uh, but I do definitely feel that, you know, where we were with the internet 20 years ago is, is sort of the beginnings of where we are now with uh, things like blockchain and, and Bitcoin. And that these uh, technologies, as they get better and they will get better, you know, really will sort of push the envelope in terms of how people who build products even definitely change the way they think about how they build products and what types of products are even possible. Uh, so I, I think it's just going to open up possibilities for doing things in ways that we don't even know how to do yet. So really transformative. I try to get people to appreciate that all the time and, and say, hey, you know, Bitcoin is just an application of really what's really important, uh, which is is blockchain, this underlying technology and this new way of doing uh, network computing with sort of this concept of trust baked right into the uh, networking layer. You've got me at a barbecue. You've fed me and you've asked me. And here's what I'm going to start talking about. And it isn't going to be like today. <laughs> We're at a barbecue, right? So we can talk about. And so it's probably be this notion of if we can raise this toddler called artificial intelligence correctly and get it propagated into robotics in the right manner, then we have a moonshot at entering a post-capitalist society. 
and not think in terms of humanity needing to regress in order to preserve decency, that technology actually get us to this place where all the paupers could become princes and we don't have to jealously sit there and argue about what princes should become paupers. And that's really exciting, but it has to be handed, handled delicately. And then we're going to discuss about, well, what about privacy and security and, and whether the uh, cyberpunk guys were correct when they looked at this future where privacy has to be seen as a virtue and security is merely a protection from authority. That's the way the barbecue is going to go. It's gonna be, uh, there's going to be this slow trickle of people away from me as I'm telling them, read Cory Doctorow, read Cory Doctorow, please. And then they all get together in the corner to talk about the Longhorns. We always want to know who are the thought leaders, thought leaders. So who are your thought leaders that you go to? You know, I still look to somebody like Elon Musk. I think that he is just sort of out there with his thinking and his ability to just try and do things that nobody's been doing. Uh, I just think he's got this sort of confidence and brazenness about him. You know, I don't worship at the guy's altar, but I I, I don't know. He just seems to really be able to push envelopes that nobody else is willing to push and, and sort of be out front and center with it. Other than that, I I sort of really get my info from all over the web. I, I can't really say that I espouse to any like major thought leaders. I, I pretty much consume information anywhere that it crosses my path. Probably not as much well-read as everybody else here, but... Oh, I agree with the uh, Elon Musk comment, and I would add Ray Kurzweil to that as well, in terms of like the broad futurists who are coming from the business world. Also, uh, a whole slew of Digerati. There's a whole fast code design, Quartz, Gizmodo. There's a whole group of, of reports reporters in there. I won't name them all that are just really amazing in not just being thought leaders themselves, but also scraping up a lot of thought leadership and putting it together. And I digest that stuff daily. And then also at Argo Design, our, my, um, the partners, Mark Gogger and, and Kevin McDonald, and especially Mark Ralston, who has been really pushing me through my whole career to really think about the future, but also think about where you can apply design meaningfully and uh, really respect his thought leadership as well. For our listeners, which books do you recommend? We'll start with Jared. Okay, so absolutely, you need to read his accidental trilogy of Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Makers, and Walk Away, which effectively lays out a new economy based on current technology. He pulls off some of the most magical science fiction that feels like it's 20 years from now, which is the hardest to write. And then if you're into product design, you need to read Bruce Sterling, The Shape of Things, and the concept of Spine. And then if you just love science fiction in general, I hope you've read the Three Body Problem uh, trilogy by Chichen Lu by now because it could put some of this like, yes, they're aliens, not AI, but it could put some of this like, do we really need to be afraid of sentient AIs into some real perspective for you? Chris? Yeah, uh, I'd have to go with a couple uh, interesting ones here. One of my favorite books, Where Wizards Stay Up Late, The Origins of the Internet. Highly recommend it for folks who just sort of want to go back in time to early technology developments. Gets a little bit of maybe on the engineering side and things like that, but I I think it's a lot of interesting uh, history. I I sort of like history and nonfiction, but if you want to dig a little bit deeper where the internet came from, uh, really, really great read. Programmer Be Programmed, uh, another one of my favorite books. That's a short read. I think it uh, touches on a lot of things that we talked about today. It actually sort of is a short sort of guide on how to like deal with your digital world in, in a way. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are still trying to figure that out and, and deal with technology 
you know, that's hasn't been imposed on us per se, but we've been imposing it on ourselves. And so it, it's challenging. It's, there's no real easy way to understand how to deal with a lot of this technology that's in front of us at this point. Uh, another one I would say is getting the plan B uh, for any of the business folks out there, or folks who want to build an app or trying to innovate with their business. Uh, some great strategies in there, I think, to sort of help reinvent whatever it is you're trying to do. Well, I know I respect your thought leadership. I know the listeners got a ton of it, and I do appreciate your time here today. So thank you for sharing it with the listeners. You bet. Thank you. Thanks to our guests and to you, most of all, for tuning in today. Don't miss the final episode of our podcast series where we'll discuss IT leadership and the future role of IT in the organization. You can always visit Samsung Business Insights at insights.samsung.com for analysis of the IT topics that matter to you most. I'm your host, Eric Qualman. Looking forward to connecting with you next time here at Business Disrupted.